Every story spins the heart of a web, one which weaves to catch an untold number of perspectives. Perspectives are masks. They express what was to make sense of who we've become in the aftermath. We can run our hands along the infinite strands to lead us to different masks, hopefully to see things in a way we never have before. But we should be careful of what masks we wear. It's often the perspectives we're used to that make us the most blind. This is because stories are like blood, constantly changing in our veins. They have this wonderful way of possessing us, their narratives burrowing deep, and when we are alone, their souls cast heavy shadows beneath our own. Hiding in these masks are the ghosts of our past selves, forgotten fragments craving this present moment. Should we forget their desires, we may be overcome by their erratic impulses. Lurking in each of us as a darker self, we may never become. Alive in its own manner, it haunts us, not with memories, but possibilities and curiosity. History is full of individuals who embraced that darkness to become something else, something more, and some of them, from one perspective or another, became villains. My name is Harlequin Grimm, and these are the stories of monsters whose voices are lost in history. And this is Mania. Hopefully, you have all been enjoying the new introduction into the show, something that is less jarring and better encapsulates the wonder I feel in researching and writing these tales. This is the final episode in the three-part series entitled Demon. I apologize for its tardiness. There'll be thoughts on that and reasons why in the crypt-keeping section of this episode, which, if you're new here, takes place at the end of the story. The previous pieces in this series focused on two main events. Episode 9 covered the Laudan possessions in France of 1626. This highlighted the nefarious imagery as seen by the public and authorities when looking from the outside in on demons and possession. Yes, I have found a new favorite word since episode 4 when I stumbled upon the term resurrectionist. Demoniac is another relic of terminology. In contemporary writings, anybody who is befallen by a demon will often simply be referred to as the possessed, but in reading the stories of authors from older time periods, such as the 17th century, the most common term was this, demoniac. I've fallen in love with this word because it takes ownership away from the human. The possessed sounds similar to the elderly or even the sick. It implies that you are human, but you have something wrong with you that you have a state of being imposed upon you. On the other hand, demoniac surrenders power from the human and offers it to the demon, better encapsulating what the relationship purports to be, the utter lack of control of one's body. In this way, your current state surrenders its humanness. You are no longer a human imposed upon by a demon. You, yourself, are the demon, and now it is you seeking to return to ownership of the body. The author Augustin Clement had another term to add to this picture, obsessed. He felt it was important to illustrate that being obsessed by a demon means to be externally bothered by it, one further step removed from its clutches. Perhaps this means that hallucinations are being played upon your senses, 
as we saw in the beginning of episode 10 in Lorraine, also located in France. Perhaps it means hearing voices that belong to no one in empty corridors. Should these patterns worsen and the demon take a more intimate interest in you, being possessed opens another world of possibilities. It means you'll likely be speaking languages you've never known, will be able to travel great distances at wondrous speeds, and, quite commonly, you will know intimate secrets of those doing their best to exercise you. This brings us to episode 10, eight years before the Laodun possessions, offering a different perspective. I explored the concept of gratitude in the hands of a demon, which is rather strange. I mean, think of the opportunity, having access to previously unknown knowledge, the ability to speak languages you've never known. Could it be that being possessed by a demon is merely a struggle because it is traumatizing, an experience of sharing a body with an unwelcome guest? Assuming this is possible at all, one can imagine making an ally with their demon, enjoying the garden of knowledge presented to them, using it to their advantage, speaking multiple languages without having to take the pains to learn them, communicate with cultures and people previously unavailable to them, do impossible feats of physical strength, unlocking the limits of one's physiological cage, even act beyond it and explore flight. Such alleged occurrences and even more extraordinary claims are not uncommon in the historical texts I take from. But the phenomena of demonic possession in 17th century France wasn't merely medical, emotional, or even psychological. It was also greatly political. During these times, authority was tied to religion in a less subtle way than the cultural norms of today's politics. With regards to possession, many felt that the veracity of the Catholic belief and tradition could be proven, even validated, by the existence of demons being exercised by Catholic methods. After all, if the Church was successfully diagnosing possession, and also exercising it using rites from their texts, in their eyes, this was not merely proof of demons themselves, but the power of their faith. Putting it into the context of the time, it empowered them over their counterparts of this very specific point in history, when Calvinism and Catholicism were butting heads. A little before the reign of Charles IX, there existed a girl of 15 years of age, Nicola Arbery, in the town of Vervins. One night, she found herself drawn out of her chamber by the voice of somebody familiar, an old, croaking voice. The cooling air of a late summer's evening comforted her against a sixth sense of eeriness rising up from the arches of her feet. Alone, her shift fluttered, tugged at by the wind with an almost deliberate air. She followed the pole until she was in the garden beside her home, where an elderly man stood with his silhouette rimmed in moonlight. His mouth moved rapidly as he stared at her, but no words were produced, and through the translucent quality of his pale eyes, Nicola was dumbfounded to realize she was staring at the phantasmic likeness of her late grandfather. The visitation was no more comforting than it was timely. There was no coherence in his appearance, his words, nor even a great sense of familiarity in the way he held himself. As she drew nearer, a faint part of Nicola understood that this was no more the spirit of her grandfather than a puppet is a living piece of clothing. Yet that part of her was buried beneath nostalgia, bewilderment, and the untidy scars left behind by grief. Soon she found herself falling into a nightly daze. Nicola would stir from her sleep, 
unbidden by loud noises, chimes, nor even the stutter of shutters and boisterous winds. In the midnight after hours, and sometimes even those just before dawn, Nicola would find herself returning to the garden to converse with the spirit of her grandfather, to be lulled into stupors and long, hazy walks across the countryside, which often lasted hours. In her dreams, her body took flight beyond the quiet roads and farmlands. She was transported, carried out of sight, even in the midst of others who happened to be awake in those small hours. And that same dim awareness mentioned before was the recognition of the formlessness of this apparition. In the ambiguity of memory, there was something else behind the ghost. A slender, dark form, with a youthful, mischievous, and perhaps insidious air. In the mornings afterwards, she was always left with few answers, but more questions. Once Nicola's body was witnessed drifting away into the night air from her chamber window, alarms were rung. If you've listened to the previous episodes, you understand just how quickly this situation escalates. Whether the demoniac is 15 or 26 or 45 years of age, it doesn't matter. As before, the procedure for approaching the spiritual mutilation, the subduction of the body, this cataclysm of the soul, is begun with a host of authorities in the subject matter weighing their opinion. Once news reached the public, outcries were raised, and quite quickly this turned into less of a nightmarish tale of a young girl being seduced by a demon, and more into a political battle between Calvinism and Catholicism. It was not long before those who knew of Nicola's tale were convinced that it was an extension of the devil residing in her body. The Bishop of Leon gave his permission and power for conjuring up the demon and communicating with it. The resulting exorcisms lasted more than three months, during which Nicola's body was torn from the hands of nine men, from some sources, the number is ten. And on the last day of the exorcisms, in the full blazing light of dawn at the heart of the cathedral, indeed sixteen men could not restrain what was wrestling with them. As it was one of the final exorcisms, as in our other stories, Nicola's was put on display in a scaffold erected specifically for this purpose. Crowds had gathered in the cathedral to observe to reported numbers of ten to twelve a thousand. Foreigners even traveled specifically to witness the event. The Pope's nuncios, the parliamentary deputies, and even university officials were in attendance. This particular demon having an affinity for flight, Nicola was wrenched from the hands of the exorcists and those restraining her. Then she was put upright, hanged in the air, stiff as a board of oak. There was an unnatural stillness about her. What was heard next was the slick unraveling of a tongue, which rolled from her mouth into a truly mortifying and impossible length. It was long enough that it dipped towards the crowd of priests and exorcists, causing several to scramble for a means to dodge it before the prodigious muscles slapped against the ground. It was evident that Nicola's eyes began to smolder next. A gray and pale smoke, which smelled of cedar, moss, and earth, clouded the cathedral, as other demons had in previous recounts. This one in particular compelled diverse tongues from Nicola, revealed secrets of its exorcists, and would often speak in three or four different voices or tones. Although spectacular, this dramatic display was one of the demon's last. 
Perhaps it was a final demonstration of its power before deciding to give way beneath the heavy weight of exorcists casting Latin banishments upon it. As Nicola was slowly lowered upon the length of her tongue, many members of the audience fainted, experienced abrupt vomiting, or fled the cathedral with hasty prayers as they refused to look any longer at the sight. Upon reaching the ground, Nicola's tongue had returned to its normal size. A nearby doctor forced a tincture upon her, who by then was entirely unconscious. The tincture, or rather, the poison, caused convulsions until Nicola expelled it and what was left in her stomach. After this, she came to her senses, and there, her shift stained with vomit at the heart of thousands of onlookers. She once more retained full consciousness and realized that she was at the end of this strange and weary dream. A dream which, like any other, had come to a sudden end, but this one had begun in the tranquil moonlight of a garden with a ghost. The day following this event and the ensuing procession, the bishop gave communion to Nicola and declared that the demon had since been banished from her. Bells rang throughout the town in celebration, bells ringing out like victorious shouts after a long three-month battle. The experience was so solidifying for the Catholics that it founded a perpetual mass celebrated every year on the 8th of February, and according to the author of this old text, a statue was made in the choir pits at the nameless cathedral which still should be there to this day. Maybe the author should have thought of maybe mentioning the cathedral before dropping this bit of information, or really before telling the entire story. But if anybody in France happens by a statue with a girl and a three-foot tongue, please tweet it at me so I can go visit there myself. Of the extraordinary claims of demonic possession, of one thing we can be absolutely certain. Like public executions in Victorian London, if the story was given enough credence and brought to the public stages, these events were all but fated to attract the attention of thousands. In a time where spreading the word of such controversy was hastened by letter and courier alone, we cannot find these numbers to be anything but as extraordinary as the claims themselves. Though we are quick to be suspicious of the intelligence of the public eye in history, hasty to dismiss their fascination as superstitious greed and a lack of basic logic, I, for one, cannot help but wonder just the variety of belief there was at times like this, and the varying degrees therein. Though these stories inspired not only thousands to observe, but also to cast hysteria over crowds and induce possession symptoms upon dozens at a time, I do wonder just how cognizant our ancestors were of the absolute madness behind their claims. Claims that were reportedly believed and accepted at face value by the general public quite as soon as they arose. Were there parts of their minds? like Nicola in the garden, which wondered dimly if all this was as it appeared. Human lives being burnt to crisps on account of interacting with supernatural entities beyond their control. Humans being sacrificed so as to provide a scapegoat for possibilities as yet undetermined by evidence and reason. Both in Loudon and Lorraine, exorcisms and burnings put on display weren't merely demonstrations of great spiritual battles and dances with devils. They were political statements, not only harnessed and manipulated by ignorance, but dangerously dramatized by bias and ulterior motives. As for what is fact and fiction, I leave the majority of that to the listener's imagination. 
I will admit that I dramatized the scene of Nicola's tongue unraveling. Once I read in the original account that her tongue hanged half a foot from her mouth, I couldn't get the image out of my head, and it sort of felt both too humorous and poignant. Poignant in the absurdity of the political twistings of the tale itself and how it was so blatantly used as propaganda against the Calvinist movement. The tongue was sort of a mirror, ridiculous and profoundly unbelievable. Other than that specific detail, all of these events happened as described in the order with the characters mentioned and even the supernatural recounts of flying bodies defying the strength of 16 men. I don't know what demon possessed her, but I hope nearly it has time to pay me a visit. Sounds like way too much fun. Alright, now for some crypt keeping. Let's see. A few weeks ago, I was on the podcast Turn That Off, which is a comedic show with uh, a couple of entertaining and humorous guys, and basically they tell relevant news stories that happened that week or just weeks before and are hashed out. It's a very light atmosphere, and I was happy to join them. I'm not sure if I'll be back on, but I'll definitely be providing information on that in any of the appropriate social circles if you'd like to go listen to that. Maybe see me in a more lighthearted atmosphere. All right, uh, what else? Well, I am starting uh, a writer's group, uh, the Writer's Cabal. Only this isn't your normal writer's group. This is a group of dedicated and uh, extremely motivated writers. People who hold their craft and their ambitions with literary arts very dear to their existence. Whether you're a screenwriter or a novelist or somebody who wants to get a website up and running, whether you're querying out a novel right now or just writing your first one, this group is aimed specifically to be highly productive and to not listen to excuses like writer's block or time management. It's aimed for all of us to help one another in a very direct and almost rigid way. Uh, we will be meeting once a week. It will be an exclusive group and it will always be at the same time. We will be discussing our passions and our goals and our specific tasks that week, the week before, and the oncoming week, so as to really narrow down on our dreams and cut them up into bite-sized fragments. If you're interested in that, there will be a link on our website and a form you can fill out and you can get into contact with me, as well as the institution which is sponsoring this, which is the Better Together Network. Alright, uh, I'm sure that's not the last you'll hear of that, but moving on, I suppose with the lateness of this episode, uh, there's not much to say, not many excuses to give. When mental illness strikes, it can be quite a harrowing and debilitating deficit when it comes to creative projects. However, I'm quite happy with uh, getting this out, at least in August. <clears throat> uh, it definitely was a very busy month for me. I will be traveling in the following month in London, Poland, and Stockholm, and I'm hoping to have a small piece in each city to give to you. I know that Poland isn't a city, but I'm not sure exactly which city we're visiting yet, so I'm leaving that a bit open. And besides that, I have been keeping other flames going as well, so the Black Carnival is still producing stories. You can still find articles on my website. The most recent one I wrote about ghosts and storytelling and the power of that archetype, uh, specifically in two films, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House and Insidious. And now that we are done with this series, it will certainly not be the last time you hear about me and my obsession with demons, uh, but it will be the last time that we focus on demonic 
will be the last time in a while, at least, that we focus on demonic possession. It would be nice to return to the more eclectic nature of this show, and perhaps more freeing both for you and for me. As always, I am eternally grateful for your, your listening and your support. If you would like to support this show directly, you can go to patreon.com forward slash harlequingrim, or you can go to the support page on my website, harlequingrim.com, and simply support it directly there. Other than that, you can rate and review it wherever you listen to it, or you can share it with your friends and family. Whatever you do, thank you very much for your support, and I do sincerely hope that you'll be joining me next time.